Hi, this is Tony McCall and you're listening to the McCall to Talk podcast and today's title is Academy Football, Can It Do Better? And what I've had to do is do a recording, don't edit it, just play it straight through, warts and all. So uh, forgive me for, you know, really smooth recordings. So uh, as we go on here, of course, I'll bring guests on to talk about the overriding topics of this uh, podcast and uh, people to add some weight and some anecdotal stories and views and maybe different opinions to mine, which of course is is great and fine. Uh, but to kick off, I um, wanted to go through my experience and my background so that moving forward, you have an idea of who I am because, you know, nobody. And, um, and that perhaps put some context around the experience uh, and um, and things I've seen and things I'd like to improve. If I was given the chance, I, I think, of course, I th- believe I could make that happen within a club. Uh, but uh, actually in this game, I think my opportunities diminished because, you know, I, I spoke about things that I felt could be better, which uh, always troubled me that. Uh, but quick bit of background is that um you know if i've well worked in professional football of course but uh i come from a council estate in uh, in in luton failed footballer like most people i felt it was my route out of a uh, let's say a very difficult upbringing um snapped my cruciate first when i was 17 tried to to uh, come back Snapped it a further two times. But luckily, in my early 20s, I was offered opportunities to coach. Actually, I did community coaching first with the, with the local council. A friend of mine was doing soccer schools and uh, invited me to come along. And I got a bit of a bug for it and felt like this was really my my journey. You know, I, I, I mean, of course, I love the game, but felt I could communicate it fairly well. Uh, I could I could get into the um, into the learning of it very well. I, I, I tactically felt that you know I could uh, unpick uh, player performance and overall team performance uh, rather than just you know shouting random things at people like come on um, you know actual real tangible things. So uh, I ended up doing my coaching badges and very early doors. I was you know one of the most advancedly qualified coaches in the region which was, was quite a miracle considering my background and I went on to well what I worked at did coaching at three pro clubs I was 17 years experience in academy football uh, I had experience doing uh, I actually did the task of performance analysis which I thought was brilliant it really got me to know how the sports science guys work uh, oh, forgive me if you don't mind. I just need a, a quick drink. Okay, so yeah, performance analyst role, which I think is, especially in the modern game, of course, is really important. But um, I think at the time when I first started, actually, was was I found often traditional football people would kind of push back to kind of some of some of the science and some of the analytical approach and. And, uh, and and video analysis, you know, as has been proven today, in every major football club in the world, they have a major p- 
performance analysis team and that is of course not just now for match preparation it's also used in recruitment and i got to use all the the associated platforms and software i was a first team scout at three professional clubs i and that that involves player recruitment but also match preparation which is really enjoyable because you feel like you're part of the match day um, team you know and, and and they're helping some way to try and win football matches uh, i did uh, of course yeah player recruitment i did set set piece specialization uh, again um providing clubs i sort of like caught a bit of a bug for that realizing how important it was probably pioneered by sam allardyce you know ahead of his time let's say at bolton uh, we actually had been in there and provided some some kit at the time many many years ago and got to know some of the sports analysts there as well uh, again that sort of uh, that sat with me and really uh, resonated with my development uh, we did uh, youth recruitment and all the dna associated with that i did that for a level one academy so it's good to understand what they look for in players um, and what they feel they can develop because you you know you don't recruit a ready-made footballer so that was fascinating and and as we go through these podcasts i'll go into real great detail about all of those experiences so you know if you're a, a young player or parent and you you feel like you would like to know what that looks like i'm happy to share it i've worked for clubs in the efl and the premier league uh, as well as non-league where, where I was a manager and did lots of coaching when actually started out in non-league sorry but, um, in senior football uh, was was very successful as a as a manager uh, well joint manager and uh, coach and ended up in non-league which was absolutely terrific we, we had a great time I'm going to share loads of experiences we had actually which was with Dunstable Town what a journey we was on at a brilliant level and great memories and I hope and like to think that I paid a played my part in in keeping that that club going. So uh, so yeah, started there and ended up there in terms of where I was last. Um, we did coaching master classes in schools because I'd actually created my own game. Uh, very very quick story. Uh, so I'm a fan of netball. Uh, I I love it because when you think about transition games. It is one of the only games that really can't be dominated by a single individual. If you think about school class of children, typically school PE ball games and transition games are dominated by one or two or three individuals uh, due to, you know, the ranging abilities and things. And um, the thing with netball is you can't succeed on your own because you can't move with the ball, the very principle of the, of the game. So I loved this concept. Um, actually, my sister was excellent at netball. You know, she she I think well she she was well within the England stru structure. She didn't uh, for one reason or another felt that she wasn't going to get an opportunity in the in the first senior team. But she was she was absolutely terrific and, and ended up with caps for Ireland. And I used to watch this game and it fascinated me as I say for movement. Well, in the syllabus for coaching when I was a youth coach. Of course, very structured, very syllabus based. And one of those topics, again, will come on later in podcasts, is movement and awareness. 
And when I stop and think about movement and awareness and, and the club, to a degree, give you your autonomy to, you know, that's the topic. You work out how you're going to deliver it. They'll give you some guidance some some things like, for example, they always want a goal at each end. They want to, you know, make it directional or whatever the overriding kind of rule, but they don't tell you what to do and how to do it. Uh, so that was, so my method was thinking, I want to start with netball rules and then progress it onto the ball being on the floor uh, it, with that kind of principle of encouraging movement off the ball. And when you watch netball, the detail of the movement is unreal, like disguise runs, third man runs, um, uh, uh, uh yeah, it really un, uh, unreal detail in um, li little, you know, drop your shoulder one way to go another way. Love all that. Like, that's just like how you get, you know, it's how you win the ball from a throw-in. So, um, so I put this in place. Uh, parents didn't like it. They thought I was crazy. You know, I'm, I'm teaching the the lads uh, in it. I, I can't do the, the Brent comments, but I'm doing it. So I imagine it. Um, and uh, it's a girl's game, you know. That's, that's their their view and I was always disappointed with that because I felt well actually I have played the game at that time yes it, it was dominated uh, well it still is I, I guess by by females but but males play the game and um, and you and you're not understanding the the detail and the structure so all I did was I thought okay I'll just bluff them and I I bluffed them by pretending it wasn't netball. So I still did it because I was, you know, hell bent. I, I was right. And I put an end zone in. So you had a, a like an American football style end zone where you could make a forward run and receive the ball. I put goals at each end where you get increased amount of points if you scored a goal at each end. Uh, and several other, several other little things. I made it a mixed sport as well when I ended up doing it in schools. And... Um, it just, it just, I just loved it, and and everywhere we went, everyone loved it. So we took this game, we ended up calling it football, and took it to schools. And we did this in, eventually, we did this in two over two hundred schools, and we coached over ten thousand children. We averaged ninety eight percent success in terms of children say they enjoyed it and would play it again, and um, the feedback was phenomenal. Unfortunately. Things happened uh, health-wise, which meant we had to. Uh, unfortunately, as a family, we had to we had to stop it. But that was one of my big experiences of life, and and I and I absolutely loved it. And I also, from a business perspective, provided sporting technology, hardware, software to well over fifty, mostly foot, professional football clubs, but also rugby, cricket. Um, and some governing bodies um, for 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 learning, and again that got me into so many environments, including overseas in Germany, um, for example, and um, and it meant I had a kind of wide view of of uh, you know of the game and 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 seeing it's you know I'm not not because of business I wasn't locked into any one club, so if I was working at a particular club, you know. I, I could also be doing business, you know, at some of the biggest, and that included all the ones that pretty much you could mention in this country. At some point, I've been in there, met with their first team staff, and worked out, you know, some of their strategies for going into another fixture. 
Uh, in fact, at one time I remember working, doing some work with Middlesbrough. Met a guy there called Bill Beswick. Actually, Gareth Southgate was a manager at the time, but uh, who, who was a tremendously um, polite when I, when I met him. And But this gentleman, Bill Beswick, uh, was the psychologist there. Middlesbrough, again, I think at the time, were a bit ahead of their their time, or the, 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 the head of football, I would say. You know, they were really innovative in that era. Uh, but Bill Beswick was just a lovely guy. And, and at the time, we also were working with Tottenham Hotspur. And there was a time where they were playing each other at the weekend and actually I was supporting both clubs separately with their match preparation to play each other. So I was fully aware of the strategy and the tactics of both teams. Uh, and I, I guess to this day, I think it may have been a test. It may not have been a test, but I certainly resisted the temptation to tell anybody and publish anything. And and I and hopefully that gave me some credibility, you know, and... And this game is, I think, about trust and integrity, and and uh, I'm sure I, I, they felt that I passed that that that, uh, that test because I didn't share anything between the two clubs. But but there you go. So that's a bit of my background. And in this particular podcast, we I want to talk about youth development. And um, for me, there's like the cornerstones of youth development in terms of professional youth development. Uh, they, they fall into four areas. One, I feel that we need to give talented young footballers the absolute best globally class leading platform to enjoy, learn and perform and develop. So on that basis, really, because I think over the years people feel I'm very anti E triple P or anti-improvement and that is definitely not the case uh, some of the some of the I mean the training grounds you go to now of course are absolutely unreal uh, and I'm totally all for that and um, yeah that's that's my my point number one my second point is that um, you could argue should be point number one if it was in terms of order of importance but all players should be in a safe fair happy and enjoyable environment and I don't think actually that it probably it probably does happen in most places, but in one or two experiences in my career, it wasn't the case. And I also think as part of that, you should be creating amazing memories because, for example, I knew some players like if they're getting released, they're like treated like the way first team players are. And I'm not saying that's acceptable either, but in football, this archaic culture of, of the way people act is that if a player isn't being or felt that they're going to you know stay with the club and be signed it's almost like they start getting ignored and pushed aside and and I just think even if you are gonna like if I was letting someone go in business do I have to be horrible to them you, you know that just that to me really sat bad with me and I've seen that happen so many times so whatever happens if they're in this club half a percent are going to make it so why can't we still just make this amazing memories because if you think i think back to my even youth grassroots football i still have amazing memories so if you're the leader of an academy 
then yeah, and okay, you've got all these boxes to tick and all this auditing you have to do and all this school-like structure. But don't forget the fundamental part, which is those young people need to have great memories because we know statistically they're not going to make it. So at least let them look back and think, wow, that was brilliant. So that's my point number two. Point number three is that we give them the absolute best chance to succeed in that game. And again, I don't think that's always the case, but also out of football and ensure. And if I'm a leader of a football club, what I definitely want to make sure is that this football that we are taking you along, this timeline of this potential for you to be a professional footballer, isn't going to badly hinder your future. And that is, I think, a huge responsibility that is being overlooked by a lot of football clubs. And finally, point number four is to have open and fair opportunities for all. And well, I guess you could argue I'm being leading there. I mean, am I, what am I suggesting? That it's not fair? Well, okay, let's rather than suggest things and rather than trying to conclude and unravel what I'm trying to say, I absolutely 1 million percent have witnessed unfair treatment of players. For example, that maybe got released for reasons other than their football ability or capability or potential. So there you go. Number four, I think the game needs to find a way of being much fairer to to young people. And I'll develop this more as we go on this this uh, this podcast, particularly focused around youth development, uh, across 11 subjects, uh, which are my overriding titles for what I feel should be adopted uh, within, well, if it was my environment, but if you're a club owner listening to this or a I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm underqualified compared to probably nearly all the academy managers in the country. So, yeah, qualification wise, well done. You, I'm not knocking that. You've gone on, you've done your, you know, academy manager's license and all these. But I congratulate you. But I'm talking what I've witnessed, what I've experienced as a coach on the ground level. And if I was given the opportunity to 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 lead a club. These are the overriding topics which I would go after to improve because ultimately as well, surely from the club's perspective, you want the very best opportunity to get return on investment. And I think this makes your club look more attractive, especially where it's competitive geographically. Make your club the most attractive place to come for, for parents to think, yeah, this is the, this is the only option for my, for my child. And these are the, the topics that I would go after. So the first topic is contracts and when I say contracts, I'm talking youth contracts for foundation phase players. So under nines, tens, elevens. And it's just my opinion. Now this is a lot for a club because it's so competitive. So it, it will probably take the FA or who, in my opinion, actually the Premier League because they're, you know, they're, they're the, they're the ones running EPPP and um, and therefore let's say in my view are governing it more than the FA and um, 
I think that the rule should be there's no contracts. I personally don't think any child that goes to primary school should be contracted to do anything, anywhere. Uh, now, I can understand registration, so I would put in just a free registration. I understand that, so that's effectively like a, as if you're a grassroots team. And that, of course, you know, makes sure everything's, um, you know, nice and legitimate and things. But not a contract. I mean, I personally have uh, got... I'm quite uncomfortable when I see the images of a young child sat in front of an advertising board um, saying, you know, signed for uh, whichever club. I find that quite uncomfortable. And I've even seen, you know, what is some of the private academies, if you like, which we'll come on to, that say, great news, our product, if you like, they've not said that, but that's the way I see it, because it's a commercial business, has signed for dot, 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 as a, pr a professional contract, and using the language professional contract. I don't know, that just sits up really uncomfortably f with me for, for a whole number of reasons. It might be worth bearing in mind that these are children that mostly believe that Santa Claus is coming at Christmas. So, yeah, no, I don't think they should be uh, contracted. Uh, they could be dual registered. I think they should still be able to register at the grassroots club. And that gives then parents choice. You know, if they want to have a weekend off, they can go and play with their friends still and, and keep that relationship going. Uh, and of course, there is a risk. There's a risk to the club because we know that it costs them between two and four thousand pound a year just to for that player just to be there. And yeah, of course, there's a risk that they could make that investment, and that is outside of the E Triple B guidelines, so to speak. And and therefore, there, there's a risk. But you know, if you treat that as a, like a soccer school, community based, <clears throat> but if you make it brilliant then I think parents would take their children where their children enjoy it most. You know, if you if your child doesn't enjoy doing something, the parents aren't going to take them there. Uh, I know that myself as a parent. And, you know, for if I just look at the example of the North West, which just reel some clubs off. Burnley, Blackburn, Preston, Blackpool, Wigan, Salford, Stockport, Oldham, Rochdale, Bolton, and some others you might have heard of. Man United, Liverpool, Everton, Man City. So if you're the former list of those clubs, what have you got to really hook players and hook the parents to bring them to your club? I would say be brave. I mean, it's great. Who? What? No parent in their right mind. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. No parent is going to stop their young son from signing for Man City or, or Man United. That's not going to happen because, like I said, you could you could take the moral high ground and think it's unethical and you'll perhaps think that you've, you know, denied your child an opportunity. So you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So it's going to happen. But in the meantime, why can't you stick with your local, your more, the club that's 20 minutes down the road and if I'm in charge of any of those other clubs, I'm just going to make that environment brilliant. So the kids love coming there and still you can still have a syllabus. You can still have a great learning platform. 
So the guys that will tell me, yeah, but you're missing, you know, real big opportunities to to really develop, I don't know, ball skills, one one v one ball manipulation, all these things. You can still do that, of course you can, but believe in yourself. I don't think you need a contract to do that, and it's morally wrong anyway. So you know, lock them into your club emotionally, make them love it there, and later on, if they thrive, if they succeed, if they're really you know, dominating sessions, you maybe move them up and they're still doing well. There's every chance that Man United, Liverpool, Everton and Man City are going to be scouted and they're going to end up at that club. Okay, great. But in the meantime, you've put something down, which is memories. My next topic is titled Too Many Players in the Elite Controlled Environment. And I'll explain why I think it's a problem and why I think it should change. So the number in these, well, for me, is overstructured football centres is absolutely staggering. And I know this myself from the work I did in schools. Sometimes you would see, uh, you know, a young ch- child and think, you know, looks really talented. But there were lots that I saw in schools that would use language like, oh, I'm a, I'm at such and such a club. I'm at such and such a club. Like, I mean, I'm talking 20 children in a school. And I used to think to myself, wow. Now, of course, when you pick the bones out of it, you realise they're probably in a development centre. And uh, But the perception is that they're at a pro club. So for me, that... I, th- I think needs addressing, and I, and I, again at a club I'd be brave here. Uh, I mean, typically a pro club has what eight age groups, so under nines, under eights they can't sign, under nines through to under sixteens where they would become a scholar. That's maybe perhaps a hundred and seventy to two hundred players. Each age group could have three development centres then behind each of the main academy teams. That's 300 to 500 players linked. And they are paid academies. As in, you know, parents are paying for that privilege. So that's up to 500 players now. At any one stage, statistically... That means three out of that whole setup are going to make it. And I don't, not suggesting that parents say, well, you're just a doom and gloom merchant. Um, you know, you've got to believe it. You know, it does happen. Of course it does. But just, you know, there is also, you have to be realistic. Uh, recruitment should be funded by the club, not the parents, in my opinion. It's uh, it's trawler fishing. You're literally just throwing your net as far and as wide as you can, and just bringing everybody in. And the and the I think the, it's a big amount of damage done to the local grassroots football clubs. I've seen clubs that really struggle to field teams now uh, because they've got in one team three four players. Let's say gone off to play in a tournament for a pro club development centre. And these are sold typically as a route to the academy, a pathway, a journey. And and if you listen to this and you know me and I've worked in one of your academies, this bit you know is true. And it's also why I refused 
uh, or, or, and objected to, to coaching on one of these club development centres because of the way it was sold. And it's an exclusive journey. I mean, that makes us now in a game that's more like tennis. So you are given more of a chance if you're paying for it. And that's something I, I want to look into as well later on. I heard recently that a guy's son who was on the journey, he, he stopped playing football altogether. Just completely stopped because I think the mindset of the player is they feel like they're in that journey. And then they get to a point where they don't make it and they think, well, that was why I was doing it. So then when they don't get a contract, they just literally they stop playing. For me, we need to get these numbers down and we need to change the language. It's okay if you're a private academy. I, I, I ran private sessions. You know, we all need an income. But if, if you're a private academy or you're a development centre, I think it's great to sell that as syllabus style academy coaching. So parents know what they're walking into. You are getting a very well organised coaching session here with good qualified coaches and holistic development that is akin or similar or the same as the main academy team. Now I'm happy with that. I'm comfortable with that. And if the player enjoys it and you as a parent can see the improvement, then keep going. And if you can afford it, keep paying. That's like going for piano lessons or guitar lessons. You know, it might be something that they just enjoy. Now, don't get me wrong. You might go to guitar lessons and absolutely excel and be unbelievable. You might well be on stage in front of 120,000 people. I'm not taking away hopes and dreams. I'm just asking the people that are the more mature people that know the numbers and we know this game to just to, to set the standards and set the language and set the bar better and be more realistic. And that leads me on to why we need to define why we play again. Because if you talk to people of my era, era that, you know, talk about playing football in the park, in the street and, you know, all the things we've all heard. But we were all doing it because we enjoyed it. And also for me, I now know it was a distraction. It was something that took my brain away from other things that were going on. And I think this is the responsibility of parents. If not more, you know, why are you playing? Why did you play? Did you play for fun or did you play to be a footballer? I mean, of course, yes. We all, you know, I did it. I... <laughs> I even grew my hair, I think, once, like Brian Robson, which is, you know, the wrong colour for a start off. Um, so we all have those dreams. But I think you need to help define why the child is playing. Because if you actually go to ask the top players, uh, what was it, you know, that got you to where you were, you were? And was it because you loved playing or was it because you wanted to be rich? Or you wanted the, you know, the, the the drippings of the Premier League. And they all say it was just because they loved the game. And those that play now and play well are still the ones that are saying, yeah, they just love playing. I watched like, I don't know, De Bruyne. And to me, he just looks like he just loves playing football. Now, he happens to be extremely wealthy on the back of it. But let's not move away from the core reason why we're doing this in the first place dreaming is great absolutely great 
and and and, I, and let's not take away. Someone says I want to be an F1 driver like Lewis Hamilton. Great, then dream dream away. It's our responsibility as the professionals to and parents to choose our language very carefully. You know, in football, we make parents think that this is a factory. It isn't. If it was, it'd be one of the poorest ever. Imagine if Aston Martin threw away 95 out of 100 cars. Obviously, the stats for football are even worse. It's never happened in any factory ever. And if someone in football tells you that that there is a proven process, I would say to you they're wrong. And I would use the, the stats to prove they're wrong. Because the only thing we know in this game is that there is... That, well, the only thing we know is that we don't know. And there's no proven, guaranteed process. It's what works for one individual, what's worked for the other individual. And if you find that path, then that's, that's what the right one was for that individual. Because we know that hundreds of current pro footballers started as adults in non-league. Or they got released from pro clubs, went back... And then ended up back in the football league. That happens, I I'm, would suggest, probably more than most people realise. I mean, in my team, bear in mind, we weren't even getting paid. But in my team in non-league, we had four, or was it five? You could, Yeah, four stroke five. Uh, that went on to win pro contracts from being at, you know, step three. So... The only thing we know is that we don't know. Now, of course, you've got a much better chance when you're in the system because you're under the spotlight. For example, if you're, a, I don't know, the under-15s international scout, you're going to go to the under-15s level one academies first and work your way back from there. So, of course, it gives you a better chance. I'm not denying that. And it's better for you to play with and against better standard players because that challenges you better. If it's too easy, I don't think that's benefiting you a great deal. And if you're in a team that's winning 8-0 every week, I don't think that's great for any of your players. But the academy system is just a platform. It's a platform that statistically, though, is proven to fail most participants. I mean, stop and think about that. All the staff, all the investment, all the P money that goes top to toe. And yet this platform fails the vast majority of its participants. Wow, just let that sink in. When I was working in schools, I used to love doing a little survey. And so I'd ask a class or two, let's say, you know, you normally get about 30 kids in a class. And I'd ask them to put their hands up. Do you, do you think you're going to be a footballer? So I'd be careful with the question. Do you think you could be a footballer? Is what I asked. And typically, nearly always, about one third to about half would put their hand up and say yes, which is great. And this is normally, I would say, primary school age. And yeah, nearly about half would say yes. I'd ask the same group, do you think you could be a doctor? And some would say, what what do you mean? Doctor of what? Well, doctor of anything. Doctor of science, you know, vet, doctor of medicine. And then all the the ranging doctors that you can have in that field. A doctor of whatever. But do you think you could be a doctor? And typically, on average, one or two would say yes. One or two. And the the trouble I have with that is that we actually did a study and we did um, 
we, we, we put some data behind this uh, previously a few years ago. You are 30 times more likely to be a doctor than you are a professional footballer. And then you could say, now, of course, I don't, I didn't tell that to the children because it's not about, you know, stamping over dreams, but it's about being realistic. And as parents, do we really think that our child could be a doctor? And do we really think they could be a footballer? And actually, we could probably admit to ourselves that, yeah, our, our dream was that they'd be a footballer, but we never considered that they might make it as a doctor, which is a, 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 a incredibly rewarding long-term career. And football can be terribly, terribly cruel and lowly paid and lonely and moving all around up and down the country and and fighting to get your next contract and spending time injured and disillusioned. It's, you know, it's not always what it's cracked up to be. And the specialist private football academies, you know, they're cropping up everywhere and it's perhaps a different debate and I'm not knocking them. I've done this myself. As I say, we all have bills to pay. But some of them are going back to the language, you know, we we will turn you into professional footballers. I think to myself, how do you even know? What, how do you, and how can you make that statement? If the, if, the, if the main academy can't do that, if the main professional club with all of its skill and knowledge and investment and EPP money, if they can't do it, what makes you think you can do it? And do you think you're doing a better job than the professional academies then? Or the elite academies? I, 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 it doesn't sit well with me. You know, it's not, not the product or the service, by the way. I, I, that, as I said before, I, I'm fine with that. This is a standard we're delivering. So the, the message for parents really is, you know, when you go into a car, if, if, if you're overanalyzing everything, think about what you're, what you're saying. Don't get me in the car and grill them about their performance and add more pressure. I've got, you know, might have a surprise for you, and you know this yourself because you probably played football. You know, when you have a shot, even let's say the ball comes over as a volley, you've already put that in the top corner before it arrives. So when it hits the corner flag or it scoops off your ankle and goes out for a throw-in, you know you've made a mistake. Uh, and now, okay, for me, it's one of the reasons why in coaching I didn't use in a later podcast we'll talk about coaching language but unlucky was not a word that I like because it's probably not luck it's probably down to a, a technical skill that you can develop and improve but what, what I don't need is if I've done that I don't need people on the sideline shouting at me and have a go at me or getting in my car and my parents grilling me about it because when I went to sleep at night I've got news for you I dreamt that was going in the top corner I dreamt I was chipping the keeper and scoring. I, I I know I made that mistake. So I don't need reminding. I think personally, the best question you can ever ask is, did they enjoy it? And I've had loads of parents, you might think it's corny by the way, but I've had loads of parents over the years say, can you give me some advice for my young lad who's in an academy? And that's my line I always say, just ask them if they're enjoying it. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to get into 17 years of coaching experience and the whole depth of syllabus coaching and all, you know, the session plans and development plans and what have you. I can't reel that out in a sentence. But for you, I think the best thing you could do if you really want to help 
is ask them if they're enjoying it. And you might ask if there's things they could do better, sure. Uh, but, you know, it's, 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 there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you're, you're, you're the parent, you do what you want. But it's, it's just, for me, it's, I think, what would help a lot. And maybe ask them, you know, tell me the top things you did well. Always fascinates me. Dog training, in dog training, professional dog trainers ignore bad behaviour or crappy behaviour or whatever it might be. They completely blanket and over reward, reward good behaviour. And yet human nature is, we think coaching and improvement means me standing, picking out every bad thing I can see, which by the way, everyone else can see and the person that's done it knows, and then firing it back down that human being's throat and reminding them again. And you think that's coaching and learning. It's not for me. So ask them, did they enjoy it? Ask them, is there anything perhaps they feel they could do better? And what are the top things you did well? And congratulate it. Because believe me, they want to impress you. So they'll do those things good. And again. So, yeah. If I was he, well, I don't think I'd work in, in, in an academy as, as a coach anymore. But certainly if it was, you know, leadership role, then that's what I would encourage. And in fact, I put it on the door as well. I'd have it on the door when you work in, walking it, walking in for parents, for the coaches, for everybody. Create great memories because you're never going to get this time back. Most of you will get released. At, le at least look back and think fondly about it. Football has become a pay to play culture, uh, much like tennis was over the years. And I think we need to address this. If the FA can do anything, this is one of the things they definitely, definitely can get hold of, despite you know where the money and the wealth is coming from. Uh, talent is lost due to money and wealth. It has to be. And when I spent my time working in schools, I asked you know, young people, who did you play for? You know, I asked that loads, of course. And that inspired me to start a free play team because... It, on one occasion, one chap said to me, one young lad, that he didn't play for anyone. And he didn't play for anyone because he his parents couldn't afford it. So short story was, I set up a team together with a great guy locally, Graham, uh, who was absolutely brilliant in, in, in getting this off the ground. I felt that we could have a free-to-play team. Now, I know there's costs. And I know it's not long-term sustainable if you, unless you get some amazing sponsorship. So I know like subs is essential for grassroots teams. I know I get it, but it was just like a, it was almost like, could we do this? I wonder. And, and actually we, we got it off the ground and, we, and, and that particular lad, we got playing as part of that. And, and that was one of my fondest memories, but longer term, I, I know that that's, not really sustainable and, and, and sponsorship is harder and harder to come by especially in the current climate of people at home you know with less money and also businesses struggling and things so it's hard so i think the fa should set up their own id centers so not football club related not premier league related not e triple p it should be a development center set, set up by the fa uh, you know if you're in an academy it costs, I worked it out, it costs up to £500 a month to, to be in an academy. You would be driving, what, four times a week? Miles. Some getting buses and taxis. 
So I think, yeah, if, it's, if it's, that's, you know, for many people, that is just not possible. So you might not be in an academy due to your social status. You know, that, that can't be right. Or you can't go to that academy that wants to charge X. So I think there should have these local FA regional elite centres and the recruitment should be done in schools. I mean, okay, PE teachers might not be football qualified, but they're PE teachers. I'm not rugby qualified, but I think I can identify when someone stands out. So I think between the school and the regional local FA, you can pick out players, you know, from the school teams and even go and scout the school teams and bring them into these centres. And that could be funded. We could take a pot of money from EPPP or a pot of money from the Premier League. And there's plenty of money about and we can fund it. And especially for those players that come from, you know, difficult backgrounds, single parents, uh, parents, you know, that haven't got a lot of money and they would qualify to go. So it might be that you come out of an academy for that reason, but you could then go to this regional centre and that keeps you ticking over with a good high level football development and coaching. And you see these, well, okay, they're already there, people say to me. I actually had a conversation with one of the governing bodies on this. They said to me, because I said, well, how come you've got these big, lovely 3G pitches now? If you go to most council estates across the UK, some of the schools have, you know, they've got joint funding and, and outside source funding to put these lovely free 4G pitches uh, that look great. But who can access them? I mean, really, they they become cash cows for the organisations that own them. And I asked once, when I started this club that I started for free, I asked one of them on the council estate where I grew up, could we have any, is there any concession or any help you could give us? Because we're getting children to play and we don't charge them. So is there any way you could help us with the, with the facility? And the answer was a flat outright no. This is a commercial enterprise. That's the cost per hour, peak off peak, and there's no concessions. So we're still back to this, well, you can only take part based on a certain amount of money. Okay. I Others might say, well, you know, Johnny's parents work really hard or, okay. And whatever opinion you, as to why you haven't got money or you got money or whatever the reason is, the net result is ultimately for our nation that talent from low-income backgrounds could be restricted in finding their way into the elite program. No one can argue with me, surely, when you when you think, well, that means we might not be keeping and maintaining and developing our best potential players. Think about it. Yeah, my next topic is, uh, is scouting. Actually, you know, scouts do a good job. I've done it myself. And qualifications are good. It's nice to really pick out the um, pick the bones out of, of of DNA and identifying aspects of someone's game and what can be approved. And really doing this from an analytical perspective, I'm all in favour of that. The bit I'm not in favour actually of is what I've witnessed in some cases is the pay structure. I think the 
if you do anything commission-based and bonus-based, of course, you have given someone an incentive to do something to get rewarded. The danger is if you've got heads of recruitment downwards, bonus-based pay, then they are going to work towards that bonus. And that is not always the best decision for the player or the club. For me, I would pay the scouts higher and pay their expenses better and sell them the opportunity to become potentially, why not? You could become a full-time scout. You could do this at a much higher level. You're learning your trade. But personally, I would take out, no, there'd be no bonus for signing any new academy players. It's just all the wrong messages to me. And I've seen players get signed in extremely, best word I can say is weird, where you just think that doesn't make sense to me. We've made a big decision on this child's future. I don't get it. And my only conclusion was, well, okay, perhaps this is because someone is getting a bonus. And on the back of that, other players might be pushed out. So in order to squeeze 12 into 10 you can't if you if you're limited at 10 you can't you can't do it so two have to come out the other end and i've seen that also in fact i've seen it on one occasion where one of those players that was was let go in that situation went on to be a professional footballer elsewhere so i just think it's a dangerous game to be paying bonuses <laughs> on the back of the the bonus related uh, pay for scouts that I would review I'd also set up a recruitment and release committee because as much as releasing a player is is a big deal well it certainly is in my book signing a player is a big deal and I think that process again if you look at the history of football it's like someone gets uh, a hunch and if they're above you they 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 carry the decision and as coaches, I always felt, you know, I, I spent, I was spending four days a week with these players for two hours a time in some cases. And yet someone that has sat in the office and looked out the window or strolled past a football pitch and watched several games at once and glanced over at this pitch has made a decision on a player to either sign or release. Now, that that doesn't sit right with me. So I, and again, I would then start to think, is there other motivation for that? Well, I don't know. If 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 that's not you and you've never been motivated by bonuses and things, and it's all your your integrity is intact, well, good on you. Uh, but I was once asked about a player that had played once under, and the, the session got cut short because the floodlights had failed. I went upstairs and the club signed that player. And, you know, I see the player sort of skipping out. It's like life changing. I can imagine it's all over there. Facebook and the family are delighted. And strangely, I wasn't. I was thinking, this kid, we still don't know, like, analytically, we haven't given him a few weeks to settle in. And I always used to think, give kids two weeks just to, you know, get fit into the environment. It's just a knee-jerk decision. And in a few weeks, that child is going to get taken out of school. And that, 
and, and ultimately that child got released. So I think recruitment should be done uh, using a much you know wider range of stakeholders. And this could include, of course, I think it's essential to include the coaches, but also even the medical staff and the recruitment staff and no problem. Maybe the welfare person as well, because if you're looking at things holistically, you have to include all the people that understand the dynamics and uh, the whole makeup and potential of an individual. This takes away the, the, the notion that one person has got this single autonomy. I mean, that's not healthy for a club. If I was ultimately in charge, I'd still want to engage with all the associated staff. Yes, maybe I'll have the casting vote, perhaps if it's even. Um, but I don't want to be the sole decision maker. Uh, and, and as I say, because I think that that creates an unhealthy environment. And it could be, you know, I've, <laughs> decisions could be based on several things other than the player's ability and potential. Could be, and I'm not talking a player here, I'm talking the staff members' ego. There's vendettas, where there's divides in the camp. So there's vendetta, vendettas against individuals. And you've got the ulterior motive. So for me as well, when you come in on trial, has to be a minimum six to eight weeks. That player has to play in the games programme. You, you do not make a decision within those six to eight weeks. If necessary, the authorities need to come in and say you can't do that. The player has to be here for a minimum period. They have to play a minimum of half a game every week. And, you know, not everyone can succeed. Uh, start an 11 for whoever. I don't know, Tottenham Hotspur. Top, hot, hot, <laughs> Tottenham Hotspur. Tottenham Hotspurs is 11 players in the next game and therefore a number of professionals aren't getting in that team and then there's a whole raft of under 21s that can't get in the squad and then there's 18s trying to get in the 21s and so on and so on and so on so it is a numbers game in that respect and not everyone is going to succeed so part of the nature of the beast is releasing players that I get, but it's how you do it and the whole wraparound package for the player and the, and their education and their family. And I think it, it could be done a lot better from what I've seen. And I'm sure there's many clubs out there that would say, we, we think we're doing this absolutely perfectly well and good on you. These next topics are more specifically once the player's kind of in that academy environment and the first title for me is is the is the controlled hours for me from what i see the children are just too tired four four days a week is is too much you know players players turn up hungry you know like they're, they're munching their dinner as they arrive in the car or they get there early and they're sitting in the car you know rushing food down i I don't think it's enough time for homework. So you see them, you know, doing doing homework in the car. Um, actually heard of players being asleep in the car. So they've been picked up from school. They're trying to munch some food down quick and then they're having a quick kit before they start training. And it starts to become more like a chore. You know, it's like a, like a job, you know, where you're just tired, but you know you've got to go and do it. And it just, it does, there's not enough free time for me. I mean, for a child, like, where's their free time? You know, 
I know we all say, you know, you're on the PlayStation too long and all these things we think there's dinosaurs. But actually, why can't they play the PlayStation? When's their nothing time? You know, they've got schools absolutely plough the pressure on with, you know, with, you know, to meet Ofsted standards. They go and play football, which is meant to be fun. And then football ploughs all these hours and homework on the kids on top of that which is meant to be their fun bit but now this becomes like school and i think it also like it affects the siblings you know that you see them getting i say dragged along but they're missing out as well parents i know you can't they can't stay at home on their own so what do you do and there's it's like a, there's a sacrifice for this one individual and the other siblings are just towed along um as i say there's not really a lot i'm not criticizing parents for that there's there's no way around it but they're, they're, these are dark winters i used to see siblings i'd walk as i walked back from training i'd sort of look in the car and i could see shadows moving around and thinking there's like you know those people's poor kids have just been sitting in that car for two hours absolutely bored like eating their dinner in the car and trying to do their homework in the car I think, and the and the the pressure is on the parents because it's stressful, you know. And if you don't work for yourself, a lot of these training sessions start at six o'clock, and you could be half an hour, an hour away. So you're like either getting approval to leave early from your boss, or you could be blagging it. I don't know, but it, it's stressful. And like, I don't know. Say you've got to be training in West London, but you're got a meeting in Manchester you need to get you're probably putting that off because you think well I can't because I need to pick so-and-so up from school I need to get them there and then added to that you've got this the fuel the fuel cost impact is huge up like we said earlier up to 500 pounds a month in fuel that I worked out so I, I think that the the whole program needs reducing to two days and a game maximum and that third day you could add it as a football day at home and, and do that as your ball skills you know, come on, it's the modern era. Use your mobile if you want or set them up with a mobile and a tripod or whatever if you want to do ball manipulation that day. But let them do this at home or in an environment close to home. Um, that's if you want to make it a third day. And or, as we've alluded to earlier, you set the, we've set up these elite regional development centres. So go talk to your local FA and have an agreement with them. Day three for our lad is that they don't travel all the way here and back to our club. They do that session, that third session at the regional development centre. And that is to just bring the controlled hours down. Now I'll go to, to jump to the back end, if you like, of of uh, academy football. And so that takes us, you know, up to 15, 16 and, and, and either pre uh, scholar release and then post scholar release i think there should be an education impact fund call it eif or well call it whatever you want but there should be a fund for players you know because if we think about the concept of of compensation you know clubs will claim compensation for the investment they've put in a player when the player moves on where where the player doesn't move on to another club and they move out of football Where's the compensation for the player? Because we talk about a lot of the input costs. Uh, and, and, and again, I've heard clubs say this or members of clubs say to me when I, when I bring this up, well, the parents have a choice, you know. And I always think to myself, yeah, if you had a, 
have you been a parent with a child in an elite environment like this? Because that's where you would understand and be empathetic to that situation because your hands are tied. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So for me, if you are on a uh, day release or two day release, uh, that that's, you know, you, you, you're out of school. And each night you've got three hours perhaps in your car and three to four, well, three nights a week, possibly one day in the weekend. These, these hours are mounting up and mounting up. And then, and then, like I say, then you're back for day release. So you're taking out of your school 20 to 40% of the time. And that is, of course, a loss or negative impact on your education. And again, clubs will say, yeah, but we're doing education in-house. It's my opinion that education is best done in school, which is audited by Ofsted and done by skilled and experienced teachers in that environment, which is that's the reason why they're there. So we're taking them out of their education on a one in 200 chance. That is career and future defining. It has to be. And to me, it's morally criminal. If you talk to young men about education, so I'm talking when they go in day release. If you talk to the guys, they only see football. They don't say, yeah, if I don't make it a footballer, I'm going to be a doctor. I get it because they're all, they're all just, that's why they're there. They love the game. That's what they see. They're on this pathway, if you like, this factory of footballers. That's all they talk about. And I've dealt with many young men that have come out of the game and they're completely lost. And I, of course I won't name them, but I'm talking to several at the moment and they have nowhere to go. Their, their, their education is gone. They haven't, I mean, so, okay, you come out with BTEX, whatever, but what if this was an individual that could have gone on to university, could have gone to uh, 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 do a BA or an MA? Not that that defines you as a person, but I absolutely believe that this academy process has had, has to have had a negative impact on a child on such a low potential. And we, so they're, they're forever affected, forever have they have to be so here's my idea and you have to forgive me because i'm i am i'm going to read this uh, so to, to, to try and get it right so if a level one club can compensate another club under e triple p rules then equally it should compensate the player there should be a building fund of security whereby if a player gets released after a one-year pro and below they qualify for this EIF, Education Impact Fund. After one year, if the player doesn't re-sign pro anywhere, then the EIF is awarded. You're also qualified to scale down, working your way back, if you're released at 18 or 16, post-scholar and pre-scholar. This money should be ring-fenced and it's paid directly from the registered club to the university or further higher education. And it can be degree level. It could also be used for other qualifications, you know, vocational courses, you know, it could be hands on. I don't know what could work with cars and objects or, or maybe even IT or development or, or something in the modern space. But the longer the player is in the system, the higher the amount that's available. Uh, we 
research actually this is from my son he's, he's done some great research but an estimated 50 percent of nfl professionals are degree level educated according to what i've been told this impact pot would make clubs more hesitant in their commitments so going back to what i've said previously about recruitment now you've got this potential impact fund as well we need to have a serious you know conversation this is we can't just do this on a okay you know put a finger in the air and hope for the best i suggest 3k per year eif that if you're in the system from 14 through to 22 those funds could be ranging then on a scale basis up to 24,000 pounds so now suddenly a player that gets released qualifies for this 24,000 pound pot not to go to Marbella but pay directly to your establishment of education that you've chosen that's what I believe should happen I've got to touch a little bit on the coaches you know I've, I've been one after all and for me like good good real good quality coaches leave the, the academy system and the main reason they leave is time and money it actually is not a very well paid job sorry for laughing i'm not laughing actually i always laugh when i'm nervous am i nervous oh anyway uh so yeah i just it, think the job is um in, in a lot of ways it's, it's clubs know that it, it's a sought after position right you know you're wearing the club's kit with your initials on and and you, and you see a lot, I used to see a lot of that in people where I think they're kind of leveraging that, that it's an attractive role and therefore they don't have to pay very well. Uh, the full-time jobs in, in football, they're just completely unsustainable. Uh, the, the wages available are, they're not great. And, and actually I'd go as far as to say that I think football qualification pound for pound in terms of what you get, potentially get back, it's one of the worst possible career choices you, you could make in terms of return on your cost uh, so a lot of that also comes from the never-ending hours uh, if you think about a week we mentioned before you could be training three times a week and game at the weekend so you game at the weekend you do you could be doing individual let me try and get this right so you're doing individual assessments from the game but then you're planning for your next session, which is probably the Monday. So you've got to then do your session planning for the next session and individual targets. Then you finish that session and you've got to do the same again. So your assessment of the session, assessment of the individuals, it all goes into the PMA system. Then you're planning for the next session again and so on and so on and so on. So every day and every, day, every night you're working. As, as a as a coach and when you put all that together which is to, to populate all this i would say this nonsense as well really because no one reads it anyway but anyway not sorry it's not all nonsense but if you're talking about opinion based views then for me it is nonsense nonsense because it has zero effect on that player getting signed as a scholar or a pro in my opinion so uh I think for, for coaches, actually, many are kind of working too many hours. The full-time guys are underpaid. The part-time guys, it's just unviable to try and sustain that with another job. 
and it's just pound for pound one of the worst returns on on investments i don't think it's valuable as a trade and actually the real good jobs you know the proper jobs if you like i've seen that as well where it's just jobs for the boys so i think there should be similar pay standards and conditions that mirror state education so if you're going to create this education environment well then pay the people properly that are delivering it that's my view and that leads me into the the player reports themselves so these would be done like on a at the end of a six-week term much like they're done in school because that's the 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 process or the way that football has become and so as a coach you've got to put these you know six weekly end of syllabus uh, report together and wow the stuff i've seen in there that i don't even why i mean parents obviously read them and and really look into kind of detail of, of the content i don't know why because a lot of them are just copy and pasted that i've seen and i think lazy you know coaches don't realize you know you put words in there and the, and the children are like could be reading they're devastated but you're told as a coach you know put three let's say three things to develop and three things to improve sometimes you're like desperately racking your brain because it's probably gone midnight you've got to be up at work at seven you've got to be at work at seven o'clock in the morning so it's kind of all done a bit slapdash, but the, but for the child, they're taking those work those words. And it's almost like they're subconsciously pinning them on their ceiling, and that's all they can see when they're going to sleep. I just I, I just the principle of them I don't believe in. It's too education style. I, I think it's detrimental to the coach because of the hours and things, and it's damaging to relationships. I think coaches can be too ca- casual in the approach. With, with words that they use and I just don't think going over mistakes is is useful I, I go back to the dog training you know why are we telling the child about the mistakes uh, I always felt that as a coach I could understand areas that a player needed to develop and I could set up sessions accordingly and put them in certain scenarios that would help them develop that and then when they got it right I would reward them for it and bring them in and talk to them and tell them and help them and ask them to, to 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 share their experience of it and i think that there has a much bigger has a much better effect i should say on confidence and self-belief because you can be the best coach in the world i don't care who you are if you when you're a player or even a person we're at work with what you're doing whatever job you're doing confidence and self-belief are the two biggest things that lead you to do well and when you lose that we've seen the we've seen top players some of the best in the world that have spells where things don't go well and it's because your confidence takes a bit of a beating and self-belief i have it in business i have it day to day you do something it doesn't work you know is it me have i got that wrong maybe i'm not that good anymore maybe i've lost it a bit this happens to us all you're forgetting these are young people so do everything you can to keep their confidence and self-belief off the scale and you've, you you really have a much better chance of them succeeding i just I, I just can't see how collating huge amount of subjective information that no one really listens to or, or takes on board other than the child for the wrong reasons I don't see how anyone in the future of that player's development is going back and reading 
you know, what did the under-13s coach think about this, this and this? It's never getting read again. So lastly, I, I think I would like to just quickly cover the future of all of our local clubs because I think they're under threat, both smaller football clubs professionally and grassroots clubs, that they're, they're all under threat. And I know the threat from outside things, you know, other, you know, the, the world's changing, you know, gaming, for example, esports, gaming, uh, and other uh, um, distractions, you know, mostly from an electronic and an internet perspective. But I think our game's under threat. And we've got a unique structure in this country. We've got five professional football leagues for a start. And you only have to go down to like, you know, you go down to League One or even the National League and the teams that come up from the National League, like Wrexham and Notts County. You know, these are huge historic football clubs and they're battling their way down the lower leagues of, of, of our of our pyramid. We have to maintain that and we have to try and maintain our academies as well because the way the system's going and it leverages all towards the top academies, academy owners will ultimately think, well, why are we investing in these players when under each triple P rules, they'll just be taken anyway to the level one academies nearby. So it's almost like, you know what, it probably makes sense just to have a B team. We'll wait for those 10 players to be released who arguably, according to everyone, they're in a better environment with better coaches, with better facilities. So they'll probably come back better players anyway. So we'll just wait for the players to be released and pick them up then. And I think it, it, it wouldn't be unwise for, for, for club owners to think that way. And all the but all the t- all the players can't and like many of the elite they can't all play in the top fifty academies. They can't. They can't all try. You can't have a level one academy with three elite top elite teams. And what about all the things we know about growth and people, you know, maturation, for example, or or development. You know, just that, again we mentioned confidence. Suddenly they hit 15 and their confidence went through the roof. There's all different reasons why players could be at certain levels at different times and then some step back and some step forward. There's so many unknowns. So we just need to look after, of course, our player welfare and their future and their opportunities. But we have to protect the pathways for them. And we must protect the smaller pro clubs and the grassroots clubs. And some people get paranoid and defensive that I, in terms of in professional football uh, because they think, you know, perhaps I'm against, for example, EPPP. I'm not. Why would I be against something which, saying, which is saying we will help you be better with better facilities, with better structure, with, with better development, better strategies? Of course, uh, I'm all for that. Uh, but we just need the, the, to, well, I suppose I could say, are you not for constant improvement then? Do you think it's perfect? Top to toe, do you think it's perfect? Do you think the funds are distributed fairly? Top to toe. Do you think the players are all treated fairly? Now, if you think it's perfect, I suggest that you might want to take your blinkers off because that's certainly not what I think. Now, overall, 
I know not every tennis player is going to win Wimbledon and not every runner is going to win gold. I think most parents can accept that as well. Most don't get to where they want to get to. But you're building the skills for life to take them forward. And we build resilience. You know, that's something that I think in the modern era we're really lacking. And I think in our game we could help them to cope with life setbacks because it's full of them, especially in football, but in life generally. No one's going to knock on your door with the answers all the time. And it's not the perfect journey that you think it is because such and such on social media looks like they've had a perfect journey. It doesn't look like that in real life. So I don't think we should accept the suffering and we need to do more to prevent people being unhappy with life. And we can't be turning our backs on that. We surely need to do better. And that's where I challenge people that think I'm just against academy football i'm not i'm just asking can't we do better and can't we do better for those people that get, are getting left behind it's all i'm asking you to consider it so look thanks for listening that's my overall 17 years in an hour and a bit of academy football and, and where i'd like it to go in the future i'll bring on guests moving forward from academies I've got players lined up that have been in academies that have succeeded. I've got players lined up that are now back at the working world that have struggled with life and we're going to bring them on and we're going to talk to them. Uh, so we're going to have lots of new football discussions moving down the line. Thanks for listening to this absolutely squeaky clean, perfect podcast. Hope you bear with me because, you know, it's one of my first, but I hope you uh, enjoyed it. And if you've got an opinion, share it with me on one of the platforms. Uh, this is McCall to talk.